This is a sermon podcast from Ashland First United Methodist Church in Ashland, Oregon. Visit us online at ashlandmethodist.org for more sermons like this, church information, and how to get involved. Ashland Methodist, a community of open hearts, open minds, and open doors. last verse of this hymn, or if on joyful wing cleaving the sky, sun, moon, and stars forgot, upward I fly, still all my song shall be nearer my God to thee. Many of our old hymns have a pattern that they flow through of uh, praising God, longing for God. Then there's usually a rather macabre downer verse about three that talks about us being dead or dying, trying to shock us into awareness that time can be short. And then it turns into a conversion where you realize that God is there and God is near. And finally, the moment of everlasting life frees you. And this image of flight takes us in this last verse. And we talk with the kids a little bit about these these great, beautiful wings, and we imagine God as this great and beautiful angel, and God's angels that come and care for us. Uh, one of Mary Oliver's poems that um, just captured my heart talked about um, an owl. I think that's titled Owl Flies Out of a Snowy Hillside at Night or something like that. But the image is so beautiful. She draws this image of this great snowy owl beautiful and terrifying all at once. Can you imagine an angelic presence which sentimentalized so much, but this would have been, (laughs) think of the power that you might encounter if you saw an angel approach you. Beautiful and terrifying. And it's time for you to go. And the owl sweeps in on these great big wings and down it comes onto its prey. So often, this moment seems so terrifying and frightening to us. And Mary Oliver brings this moment to us, capturing how beautiful it is. That in addition to the difficulty of being alive and the long, hard process that some of us endure in dying, never is there not beauty and love and care as the part that comes from God. As we talk today a little bit about brothers who are fighting, as we remember Hiroshima and Nagasaki, as we think about what was real for the men in the Allied forces and in Asia during that terrible war, this poem that captures both the majestic beauty of God and the truth that sometimes we are terrible to each other. But in the end, these hymns so hopefully want to remind us that it's all about God. But nothing anybody can do or say to you matters in the end, except that which is done in love. 
our Hebrew Bible is often used as a prescriptive. We go to it to have it tell us what to do. And if you really read the Bible, though, you'll see that most of the stuff that happens there, you don't want to do any of that. <laughs> it's actually terrible. You know, the, the phrase, if you can't be a good example to others, serve as a horrible warning. <laughs> right? This is kind of a book of horrible warnings in many ways, kind of getting our attention. Getting our attention. Nightmares can be like that, right? You wake up and you're in a cold sweat. It's like you're... Something is calling you to pay attention. I don't want this one to go by. I need you to wake up to this. I need you to think about this. I need you to pay attention. So I want to take us to Jacob and Esau since a trip through the Hebrew Bible is never an easy one. And there's a specific kind of lineage of storytelling that we follow. So we begin with Adam and Eve, and they have three sons, they have more than that, but the three that we're really focusing on, Cain and Abel, and what happens with them? Are they a beautiful, majestic flying bird, or do they beat each other up? Things go very badly for them. Cain actually slays Abel and has to run away. Then comes Seth, another son of Adam and, um, and Eve, and from Seth, all the people pe populate and things go terribly wrong. There's so much wickedness in the world and there's going to be a great flood. And God wants to save all that God can and God seeks someone who will listen and it is Noah. And God says to Noah, build an ark, get as many as you can. Two of everything, I need you to build a lifeboat and I need one ASAP but nobody else is listening. They make fun. And when the floodwaters come, they perish. Only Noah and his family remain. Out of Noah and his three sons, Ham, uh, Japheth, and Shem, do you think they're like a beautiful bird that flies up? No. Ham is uh, roundly thought of as enslavable. There are terrible factions that develop. Uh, all these tribal wars rise up, and everybody is busy calling the other brothers' children names. From there, we have Abraham. Abraham comes from the city of Ur, which was originally uh, a Sumerian city that became an Akkadian city that became a Semite city. Do you see where I'm going with this? That became a Assyrian city. None of these cities fell without a fight, I can promise you. Abraham's very DNA comes from the back and forth of brothers who struggle to get along. He walks through Canaan. He encounters Egypt. He and Sarah long for a child, and it doesn't happen. So Abraham marries Hagar, an Egyptian, and has her son Ishmael. And then Sarah, she conceives, and she has a son Isaac. We have two more brothers on the scene, Isaac and Ishmael. Is this fairyland? No! No! <laughs> 
we are just so not getting to the bottom of the hymn in these stories. We are stuck on that macabre third verse in the middle, the one that one of my beloved friends would always insist we skip. I'm not, I'm not singing that verse, she would say. <laughs> sure enough, Ishmael and uh, uh, Sarah and Hagar have trouble coming to terms together. And uh, Sarah insists that Hagar and Ishmael are sent away. And in this situation, they are literally sent away to their deaths. If you go out into the wilderness during this time, good luck with that. The wells, if there is one, will be proprietary. There will be a tribe who considers that well theirs. Thank you, all the same. That's a precious resource that feeds their children and their livestock. They can't have strangers wandering around. This is one of the reasons that the mandate of hospitality in the Bible is so strong. Because we are inclined, as human beings, all of us, sadly, to shut the door and shut the gate. We punch in the code so that we can drive in without ever having to look left or right. It's just kind of what we do. But Hagar was not left alone by God who shows up and tells her, don't worry, I'm going to make a great nation out of Ishmael. And we follow Isaac. Isaac, who after his mother passes away, is lonely. And his father sends back to the homeland, not any of those local Canaanite girls, like, ooh, we're seeing tribalism again here. Back to the homeland. We need an Aramean girl to get Rebecca. And it says that Isaac was comforted. It's just a line, but I just love that. I like to think that they really loved each other and found love together. And she got pregnant with twins. And she was not all that thrilled about it because already... They were fighting. And she, great big belly. My daughter just recently had a baby, so I'm very acquainted with a great big ball belly very recently. And I can't imagine having two in there who were vying over territory. <laughs> and, Re and Rebecca says, uh, why did this have to happen to me? And God says, there are two nations in your womb, and two different peoples will emerge from your body. It's like, I don't remember signing up for that. Just, you know, I just want a little baby. No colic. So Jacob and Esau are born. And this is where our story sort of begins. We were going to be talking about the story of Jacob's ladder. As we follow Jacob into the wilderness and into new territory. Jacob and Esau, they vie for, uh, for a place in the family. It was said that when they were born, Esau was born first with Jacob gripping at his heel. What an image is that? Esau loved to hunt. He was very hairy. 
He was, he liked to wander. He could cook. He was a very present man. He wanted things in the now. Jacob was a homebody, a thinker, puzzled things out. One day when uh, uh, Esau had been out uh, doing whatever it was Esau loved to do in the open range and came back, and Jacob had a great big pot of red lentil stew on the stove. And it was delicious. It smelled so good. And Esau, I'm sure, was hangry. Pretty darn sure. Because he says, please, give me some of that stew, brother. And he's older. He might have pushed him. Give me some of that stew. And Jacob says, if you give me your birthright, I will. Well, that's kind of a big if, right? And birthright here is important because the village is sustained by the family and who is married into the family and that all those mouths have to be fed from the holdings of the family. And the elder son inherits a double share. So if there, if there are two sons, you have to divide the property into three. The older son gets two, the younger son gets one. See how that works? And there, this is designed to create stability so that people remain fed and cared for. This is why first cousin marriage was so considered so blessed, as you keep it in the family, make sure that everybody is fed, well-being for all. So for, Jacob to, for Esau to give it up so easily makes us think of him as foolish, disrespecting what should be done. And so we excuse Jacob for even asking the question at all. And... Esau says yes, and he gets his lentil stew. Later on, Isaac, the father, is dying. He's become very elderly. He can't see well anymore, but he loves his sons, and he loves Esau. And he says, Esau, bring me a Bring me a stew. Go out hunting and make that stew I love so much and bring it to me. And I will give you a blessing before I die. And, Je and Esau is, yes, Father, I will. And off he goes, maybe to find like the perfect plump critter. I don't know what they would have, but not rabbits, but in the, in the old world... Um, whatever it was that he was going to bring back. I'm, I imagine that Esau did this as he is so present in himself all the time, in the moment, looking for something good. Rebecca overhears the conversation and goes running to Jacob, who is playing Nintendo in the side tent. <laughs> and he says, Jacob, your dad is going to give Esau a blessing, but I want you to have it. Go, quick, I'm, kill a couple of the small goats, bring them to me, and I will make the stew he loves. And we will send you in there, and you will say that you are Esau. He's so blind now, he'll never tell the difference. And Jacob's like, but I'm not anything like Esau. And besides, the minute he touches me, he'll notice that I'm not at all furry. She goes, that's okay. We'll use the skin from the goats and we'll put that on you, and then when he touches you, you'll feel as hairy as anything. <laughs> and Jacob agrees. He go, 
goes up and gets a couple goats. They come back. They butcher them. They make a stew. Jacob brings it in. And Isaac asks him directly, are you Esau? I think he asked him twice at least. And each time Jacob lies and says he is. And so when the stew is finished, Isaac lays hands on him. I know that in Christian uh, liturgies we lay hands on each other. This is an ancient, ancient way of bestowing blessing and inheritance and promise and God's love. Isaac lays hands on Jacob and says the blessing. He will be strong and prosperous. Carry on the center of the family's way. Esau returns and learns what has happened. And we are told that he wept bitterly. Can you imagine? This was not a good thing that happened. And after he has done weeping, Esau is mad and Jacob has to run. Stolen blessing is hard for us to really understand in this day and age because our lives are so different. But I think that there is a way of understanding it. Give it a little bit of history. Who remembers the Bush v. Gore debacle? Worthy of a biblical story. And the fight over the hanging chads. Remember they had that one pop-eyed, cross-eyed guy that was staring at little tiny hole in the paper that got run. I think I must have seen that picture a million times. The hanging chads. It felt very much like that had been a stolen blessing. And I think we can think about that and understand how painful that might be even now when we encounter those moments. So, as we think about how we manage, not just within our families, brothers and brothers, but tribally, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Semites, and nation-states, Babylonians, Syrians, Japanese, British, American. Humans are so imperfect that we create these cycles of violence. Blessed are the peacemakers. We hear that often. It's so hard to live that. There was a terrible, terrible war. There have been many. The one we remember today is the one between the United States and Japan. When the Japanese had become a thriving empire and moved into Asia, and it seemed like the only way to stop them was to beat them down. And there were two bombs dropped within a couple of months of each other. The first one, June 6th on Nagasaki. Oh. 
And then on August 7th, on August, August, August 6th on Nagasaki, the first one in Hiroshima. There were nine planes altogether that were involved in the raids. Some of the planes were in both raids. One was the strike plane. The Enola Gay was a strike plane for uh, Hiroshima, and she was reconnaissance for Nagasaki. But only three of the men serving on that plane knew what they were really doing. In Hiroshima alone, between 60 and 80,000 people died instantly when the bomb went off. 135,000 ended up dying from injuries and the resulting three-day firestorm. Only 12,000 of the injured were soldiers. The rest were Korean slave workers and prisoners of war. These were terrible, terrible bombs, but we were already engaged in doing terrible things to each other. We'd been firebombing the cities of Japan. In one night alone, 100,000 people is estimated to have died in Tokyo when it was just simply firebombed. When brothers go to war, what do we do? I have an uncle, great uncle I never knew. His name is Robert McRae, Robert John McRae, and he lived in Aberdeen with my family. John McRae and his wife, Isabella, had three kids, Madeline, Annabelle, and John McRae. John McRae was a soldier in the British Army. He was, serves, serves with the Scots, I believe. I've had a really, really hard time finding anything about him. But he went to serve the British and he was captured by the Japanese and taken to Thailand to work on the Thai-Burma Railroad. The horror of these camps cannot be overstated. In some parts of the construction, 90% of those who labored died. They guess about 130,000 men died working that. I have a photograph of my uncle. When he came home, he wasn't really able to function properly. My mom remembers him making her toast one morning, or was it potatoes? <laughs> he spent most of his time in his room, and he died within about 10 years of the war. He made it back. What happens when the beautiful wings of the bird strike each other? This line that's so beautiful, on joyful wing, cleaving the sky, sun and moon and stars for God. This is how we were created and what we were created to do and be. Heavy sermon today. It's 2017, August 6th, and we are safe.
We are in a sanctuary processing memory, bravely looking at regret, and even more bravely holding fast to hope that it can be different, that armed with the knowledge of what has happened, we, each of us, right now, can choose to be the peacemakers that God calls us to be. Each of us is a beautiful bird with wings. That's good news. We honor the past by remembering what happened with a great hopeful look at the future that we plan and declare a more hopeful future for ourselves and for our kids. And that we are not afraid, like God is not afraid, to look the bad stuff in the face. We are courageous in doing that so that it might be turned for good. So that it might be turned for good. In 2015, there was the 70th anniversary of the bombings. And Paul Jeffrey, many of you know him, he is the uh, photojournalist uh, and a missionary for the Pacific Northwest Conference, serving the greater Northwest area to, by relationship. And he was there with the World Council of Churches, and he took some photographs. So during the communion, we will be showing the photographs that he took. This is a thousand paper cranes, almost. We've lost a couple over the years. These were folded by a dear, dear friend when my sister was dying of cancer. They are folded in hope and prayer. They are folded because we wish for something better. And it is said if you fold a thousand, you get what you wish for. And you will notice that there were just thousands and thousands of folded paper cranes at the commemoration. What can we do now for what has passed? We can fold a crane and pray, knowing that that prayer makes a difference right now and sets us, sets us flying. And some of us still need to catch up, and that's okay, because we pray for them too, right? So, as we work through Jacob's ladder, this is the heaviest we'll get. But it's so important that we do not look away because Christ did not. It's also important that we know that in Christ, the good news tells us that is not the end of the story. That no matter how it is that we meet our maker, the great and terrible and beautiful owl, that it is all love and softness, Mary Oliver tells us. Endless softness and a great aortal light. God gets the last word every time. We are welcomed always in love. So, are we okay? Big conversation. We're going to see those beautiful slides. There's a couple of them in the beginning are harder, and then we see the joy uplifted and the longing for peace. We okay? Okay. We sing a hymn now.